Hello and welcome to the SBS Suckling Podcast for the week of the 27th of August 2015. This is your weekly review of your thing cycling. I'm Al Hines. This week on the show, from the sandy shenanigans of the Welters opener to an Italian taking the proverbial pierce, it's been a strange old week in the world of cycling. But aren't they all? We'll be wrapping the Welters' first five stages, including Caleb Ewan's maiden win. Ask whether Duncan Gay truly is bike lane vandal. And when we speak to Fairfax Journo, Michael O'Reilly and the Thomas Kerr case, plus some other odds and ends worth wondering about. That's all in this week's podcast and with me, uh, this week, it's a pretty lonely podcast. I can feel echoes amongst the walls of this tiny studio. It's just myself and Anthony Tan. Tanny, how are you? Pretty good, Al. I'm uh, just, um, I felt like the, the Walter is the Walter uh, Farsia, you know, this <laughs> opening week. I, I'm sorry, you know, but I'm struggling to have any interest. Yeah, it does. In the ra- I mean, when you start off with a. The grand, the final grand tour. Well, it was preceded by an hour and a half with no live coverage during San Sebastian during the most critical point in the race uh, because they couldn't get a feed going to the the drone, which then transmits back to the studio uh, and then to the rest of the world. And then uh, then we just have this. <laughs> See, she sells, she sells on the seashore, something like that at the Walter. So yeah, we'll get. I mean, we'll get into all of that uh, in a little bit. But I, I, I do think that uh, the Walter is doing itself uh, uh, nothing good by nothing to change the minds of people who I think potentially turn off their attention at the end of the Tour de France. It just seems like they're trying to do things to explode your attention. But I mean, ultimately, there's a disservice to what's what you want to see, which is good cycling and good sport. Yeah, they they actually didn't even need to do anything because <laughs> they had the best lineup out of any of the Grand Tours to begin with. So just having a, a normal start r- rather than trying to do something outrageous, which they end up doing, um, is I think it's cost them. But I, I you know, and then just with uh, I know we're going to talk about it later, just with Nibali's. Um, not exit, it was a, um, what do you call it, expulsion, really. Mm. Uh, ejection. Ejection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like we're talking about some porn. That, uh... <laughs> yeah, Nibbles is, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, we've had five stages to date, uh, taking us uh, to stage five, Riota to Alcacia de Guadalajara. And uh, Caleb Ewan uh, won the last stage, but uh, we've had uh, we've had a, ver- a variety of different winners. Obviously, the team time trial opened things. We'll talk about the nature of that team time trial in a little bit. Uh, BMC won that. Uh, Esteban Chavez won the first hilltop finish. He then held the overall leaders jersey for a couple of days, uh, which was a big uh, part of his career as much as it was for Oric Greenedge, who continued to. Provide a bit of, I don't know. The f- first week they seem to they it seem to nail the first week, Tanny, don't they? I mean, it's Giro Tour Vuelta. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess the difference here, Al, is that they're nailing the first week with a GC rider, which is good. I mean, I always it was a bit apprehensive about this change of focus from one classics and stage, um, sort of stage oriented to stage going for GC, but I think they had to make the move because 
Um, as everyone keeps saying, Jerry Ryan can't keep funding the team forever. And I think they've tried to court Australian sponsors. Yeah, okay, they've got Orica. That's only, uh, well, that's until the end of next year. I think by having these guys like the Yates twins and Chavez doing well, perhaps that will spark the interest of uh, you know an international sponsor or one uh, one which is not based in Australia. So well, it makes it less parochial if they're getting successes with Yates as the Chavez as the you know I mean you've got a Colombian, you've got British guys, you've got uh, well they used to have quite a few more international stars, but uh, yeah, you're right, Tani. It's a, that's potentially important for what they can do in the future. Mm. Uh, stage three, Peter Sagan picked up sort of a. A grand tour stage win that he, uh, I feel like it was an ine- inevitable at some point. Was he sort of was knocking on the door for the last best part of the last year and uh, finally got one. Pretty convincing stage win, which was which was good to see. Yeah, I feel uh, that Sagan he could have won probably two, three at the tour if he didn't try and target like half the stages. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing happened. He even said it. Uh, the stage that Ewan won overnight, uh, he just said it cost him uh, the day before because the effort was just so hard. It was an uphill finish and he, he Tried just to said... to follow Valverde. Yeah, he was saying, oh, well, I just saw I was passing a whole lot of climbers, so I thought I'd dig a bit deeper. And, yes, he finished second, but if he didn't, if he didn't try so hard and nail himself the day before, he would. I mean, the, the guys <laughs> like Ewan, they don't do anything, and then they they target certain stages. I think if he targets um, stages rather than targets, you know, everything, everything, then he will do a lot better. He's like a dog to a bone, isn't he? he? Doesn't really. He just sees the end of a stage finish and just goes hard. Doesn't really matter what the sort of the nature of the finish is. He he needs a you know, like a line tamer of sorts on, on the team. Uh, I'm not sure Oleg Tinkoff <laughs> is the right guy to be taming. He would just um, almost... Feed the beast. Yeah. <laughs> He'd say, do it. Yeah. Um, stage four, as you uh, alluded to, Tani, Veja de la Frontera, Alejandro Valverde. It was a punchy finish. No surprise, I suppose, that one of the punchiest guys out there picked up the stage win. He looks like he's in pretty good touch, Alejandro Valverde. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's hard to say, you know, this I was thinking, geez, why is, you know, these guys going so hard in the you know, this opening week like Chavez is I mean, I was good that he lost the jersey because I was thinking a, a young guy riding what, his third Grand Tour, it's it's um it's going to it's gonna cost him if he keeps having that the, the mantle of leadership for from stage two. Uh, but Valverde, look, I, I think, I, I don't know. I, I don't think he, he'll, he'll be up. These guys who rode the tour, I'm convinced that it's it's not going to serve them well. Also, if they're trying to go for the Worlds, I mean, is, is Valverde targeting the Worlds or is the Worlds too easy? I and mean, we spoke about it last week. It seems that, some people say the course is a sprinter's course, but then, you know, we've just found out that, um, you know, Germany have decided not to... To take Marcel. Yeah. Although they are going to take the other guy who's pretty quick, Andre, yeah. so... Yeah, yeah. Um, finally, Carl Bjorn's win. I probably, we probably should dwell on this being Australians and rah-rah Australia. Mm. Uh, it was a pretty solid stage win. It was a... 
uphill finish, dragged a lot, and I guess he he waited long enough and got on the right wheel, which was Dagen Kolbs in the end. Not, never a, a bad wheel to take because he's, he's quite a diesel-y type of acceleration, so probably quite good for Ewan to jump on the back of. And, and then he snuck around him uh, probably about 120 to go or something. Uh, what did you make of it, Tony? Uh, well, I thought sort of like what you said because those stage fi- those stage finishes like the one that Cavendish won at the tour they you know it suits a lighter type of guy and uh he's you know being so small you know he can hide behind you know guys like Dagan Cobb like Sagan and and you know he's I wasn't really surprised I mean it was it was it was going to happen sooner rather than later. So now, I was just thinking about OGE. They've got quite a complete team, even though they're losing. You know, seventeen guys out of contract this year. There's it's musical chairs. It's hard to keep up with actually. Uh, so, but we we know that. Well, Matthews is staying. Gerens is staying. Uh, obviously, Yates twins, Chavez. So it's a pretty complete team for one with a budget. A third of Team Sky. No, yeah, no, they're doing. They are doing very well. Although I think that, uh, on a slight segue, that musical chairs nature of cycling does hurt the brands a little bit when you've got this sort of changing affinities of teams, ever or the changing nature of teams almost every other year. But mm. hard to say what we can do about that. Uh, we will leave it there for the world. So just uh, in case you are wondering and you're following along on SBS. Lots more until our next podcast. There's uh, a few mountains, some really hilly finishes, particularly uh, Alpujarra, which is a, a really tough stage. And then uh, I think by the time we'll uh, speak again, it'll just be the rest day and then Andorra. So the Andorran climbs are going to be uh, absolute epics. And stage 11 is that one that we uh, talked about quite a bit on the last podcast. So some real uh, big stages to come. Well, I suppose by then we'll have a fairly good idea of I would almost say who's going to win the Vuelta. But until then, let's uh, dig our teeth into some of the more fine talking points from the first week of racing. Well, without doubt, uh, the talking point, I would have to say, well... It's actually, I mean, that's the thing, Tanny. It's over-talked. So much, so much farce of the first week. You'd almost say that Nibbley's disqualification was almost overshadowed by the the sandy shenanigans of the team time trial. But I think we want to dwell a bit on the nature of Vincenzo's departure from the Vuelta Spagna. Former winner, of course, of uh, the Vuelta, former winner of the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia. Of course, what happened was... He got caught in a crash, chasing back on, in clear vision of a television camera, decided to take a tow from the Astana team car and motor away from the chase group to get back onto the main group to the consternation of pretty much everyone. However, after even after getting disqualified from the race, and probably most would say fairly, he did dig in a little bit, uh, saying that this was something that does happen a fair bit, you know, the pace was really on and that's unusual. There's sort of a, I suppose he was taking a, a bit of a jab at etiquette being lost in cycling in general. You know, when there is a crash, you don't force the pace. Mm. But Tanny, first thoughts on it all, 
I mean, this was pretty blatant. This was, you know, we've seen people taking sticky bottles maybe for 10, 15 seconds. We've seen people getting, you know, uh, you know, con- you know, controversial adjustments to their seat, perhaps. Uh, I think I seem to remember Levi Leipheimer, maybe at 2011 Tour de France, having quite a long seat adjustment from Johan Brunel one year. Uh, we've seen this sort of stuff happen, and there is a kind of a a grey area. I think we all agree there's a bit of a grey area. This wasn't a grey area, though, was it? No, I mean, it's people think it's grey because it's. I guess it's an unwritten rule how much towing you can get but when you're the guy who's yeah like you said a, a, a triple a winner of all three grand tours um you're at the head of the bunch you've got the cameras on you you've got the helicopter camera on you it's it's uh it's really a flagrant abuse of the rules and so i i don't yeah i mean the commissaires as they said they were left with no other choice i mean because it was almost trial by social media Mm. um so they have to i mean nibbly it's it's funny because he gave an interview before the volta started saying that Froome um was disqualified for a similar abuse and then he goes and does the same thing and then we know what happened at the the Tour de France, um, when when he he sort of attacked when perhaps he he shouldn't have, but I mean that that perhaps that's I mean this this is simply yeah you know taking the piss and I I just thought oh for it's it's going to do the Volta brand a lot of damage in his own. Uh, I mean I don't know how he'd face up to the next race he's going to he's he's going to be mocked mm. uh, for, for sure because uh, okay it's fine if you're 15 minutes behind or something like that but then, then even Cavendish was penalized very severely at, at the tour um you know and and he was just struggling to stay on to the back of the um the laughing group yeah uh, so for something like this I mean when you're a guy who's a you're a contender you just you just can't do that I mean uh, there was there was no excuse for it, and I think the, I mean this is something maybe uh, to to broaden the discussion a little bit. Um, when things like this happen, and then the nature of Nibali's response, you know, um, it's sort of somewhere between remorseful and I'd do it again. Sort of, you know, he doesn't. It's not totally. You don't totally buy into what he's saying. I mean, he says. Um, he qualifies almost every statement he made on on Gazetta and on his personal uh, Facebook page. Tanny, I mean, is this something which is, you know, in terms of cycling culture, it's been there has been a lot of these sort of like sort of dodgy things which skirt around. I mean, you know, we talk about doping being, I suppose, the most flagrant abuse of cheating, but cycling has this funny relationship with lots of, I would say, potentially unfair practice. Let's call it that. In politically correct terminology um but it's got this culture and then it means that it feeds these guys from a young age and potentially even up to the level of grand to a winner of doing things which are really on the edge and in this case pretty flagrant uh this is as much a problem this sort of stuff the culture itself is as much a problem as you know, any one thing like doping or, you know, rule flouting or whatever. I mean, if, you guys, if you've got guys who are thinking this is okay, that's a huge problem. Yeah, I would say that 
I shouldn't say it would just do the Volta and Nibali's brand damage. It probably does s- cycling in general because the outsider looks at this because that got, you know, that that clip did go viral. And so people see that and go, oh, it's just another way that these pro cyclists cheat. So it just comes back down to, um, you know, and then a guy who's, who, who, who's so, you know, who kind of prides himself on, um, I guess doing the right thing. He's been somewhat of a, um, a spokesperson for anti-doping, and then to then to do this. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's. I'm not sure whether, in, in terms of, you know, if he's trying to be a spokesman for fairness, then this totally goes against the grain of um, what what he's spoken about previously. I, I just can't see it being good. Yeah, for cycling because yeah, like you said, from everything from a what, uh, Froome's therapeutic use exemption and before the Tour de Romandie to this sort of thing, like people say, oh yeah, rules are, you know, being bent or all broken the yeah. all the time. I mean, I I almost feel like had it been something like, you know, this other car pulled up in front of him and they sort of motor paced him back, people would have sort of understood it a little bit more. But it was just so. Flagrant. Uh, mm. And I think the thing is as well, Tanny, and maybe this is not just about Nibley but about other riders who would think about doing the same thing, I think if people are resorting to things that are already quite bad like that, you wonder what the extension of that is. What else would they be willing to do? And I think that is mm. that really does hurt the brand, as you say. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what would make someone in the heat of the moment even decide to hop in a team car as one rider did during the Tour de France and just go a couple of hundred metres down the road. Uh, I mean, yeah, that all, all these sorts of things. I mean, just I, I really feel for the, the riders who try and do the right thing because it doesn't matter what they do. It, it You know, it just needs a case like this, like Danielson before the Tour of Utah, um, that guy hopping in a team car during the Tour de France, um, all these things that they have far more, you know, impact. far reaching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a minority, but they actually it um it's it's kind of people people the outsider looks at it and goes, oh, okay, it's it's not the minority, it's a it's a culture. Potentially, and, the upside of this all is, and similar, I suppose, in some ways to. Uh, and in a different light certainly to what happened at the Giro with Richie Port. But the fact that these things are, you know, that social media does have this amplification effect, that there are cameras everywhere, it does mean, I think, in theory, that less of these things are going to be taking place and less of these things are going to be abused um, in the future. And hopefully that is sort of, that will be the way that these guys don't even think about these things is because they're worried about being monitored. I mean, you'd like to think it was out of their duty to the sport, but... Mm. Uh, what what happens, though, Al, in the case, like you said, how they get groomed, how they um, how, how they learn the ropes. I mean, all the amateur races they do, you know, many of them are not televised, and so if they're learning these sort of... Uh, Offhand tactics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these underhanded practices, then... Um, then it's just going to kind of filter on through later in life. Oh, I sort of, yeah, am concerned that what, why are they still breaking the rules like they might have done, you know, the very first Tour de France when some guy, you know, caught a 
train or something like that on one of the stages and mm. got booted out. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty unsavory when you think about it. It's it's very damaging to cycling's credibility. It's not like as if they needed another <laughs> spear in their back. No, cycling just goes from strength to strength, Danny. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, speaking of strength to strength, uh, and we did mention these at the start, but the Vuelta does come after the Giro and the Tour, and that does mean that I think that often they will resort to sort of uh, the extreme or the out there uh, promotional tactics to sort of put their race on the map. And we have seen things like uh, the inclusion of the Unglaru, which some people think is is a bit too crazy a climb. Uh, we've seen uh, we've seen all sorts of other things, uh, little gimmicky type things. The the latest of that is of course the Team Time Trial. Uh, in the south of Spain, which, which was for large sections set to be on sand, mm. um, to the chagrin of most of the peloton. Uh, Tanya, as as a few Spanish journalists pointed out, this was actually telegraphed in the initial route announcement via the Vuelta a España, but I suppose. Uh, no one really took notice of it at the time. No, I mean, they really should have had a footnote at the end saying, please bring thongs slash flip-flops. <laughs> you know, they should have they had clipless flip-flops or something like that. I mean, I don't I don't really get what they're trying. And then it was far, all the more farcical because BMC were really hammering it. Uh, they, they came what within one second of... Well, uh, to the second place team, and then you had Team Sky, uh, who were trying to win the Volta with Froome, just loitering over. Uh, yeah, <laughs> who came third last. So that kind of made it all the more comical, really. I mean, they I, could have been in thongs. Yeah, I don't really. I don't think they should even turned up in their kit. Do you think Team Sky does a Team Sky issue board short? Yeah, perhaps. Or a, yeah, Team should have turned up in. Team Sky mankinis and totally <laughs> taking the piss. That might have got them some viewers. I mean, that, that, this is the problem, though. I mean, the, a lot of people were bemused by the fact that course designers would even think about something like this. I mean, this is something which goes to the heart of these ongoing... We, we often have these concerns about safety. I, I think back to Pavasco with the bollards on the course and... Uh, and and things like that where things aren't properly closed off. That's one thing, and you know, mm. there's things that you I suppose you can't quite control. Things like, you know, traffic control type things, which are always going to be there, and mm. that's out of the control of the course designers. This was they made the course go onto a beach boulevard. Um, okay, it might look nice on pictures, but we are still at the base of it, trying to have a bike race, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. You need the spectacle, but the spectacle was already there, as I said before, but the fact that you just had this great unprecedented lineup of contenders, I mean, they just needed to let them race. I mean, the, the course so far, has, excluding the team time trial, has has been good. It's been un- unpredictable. You've got these varied stages. They're short. Um, you know, if you're in another hemisphere apart from our own, then you'd probably be quite interested in following it. Uh, it's, But it, it just it set the whole scene for on, off on a, on a bad note. And, um, and then, yeah, like I said, the, the week prior with San Sebastian having an hour and a half of no coverage and then with 10K to go, we see 
uh, Adam Yates at, attack and and then not even knowing that he'd won the race. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then like in, into his you know speakerphone or whatever it was, his mic, you know, asking, "Have I won? Have I?" I mean, yeah, good it's times. Emblematic of, I guess. This is a professional sport we're talking about. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, uh, let's leave it there for the world tour. Uh, it's too easy to, to to dig the knives in. Hopefully, uh, this will be an aberration in an otherwise fantastic race, and we have seen some good racing. Hopefully, that will continue in the next couple of weeks. Well, is Duncan Gay, the Minister for Roads, uh, a bike lane vandal? And what is the lesson from the Southern Coast Drive case against uh, Thomas Kerr, who ran into a bunch of cyclists on that very same road late, uh, well, early last year? Uh, Mike, uh, we've got Michael O'Reilly on the phone with us, who is an the expert. The esteemed Michael. The esteemed, oh, the respected, the, yes. the knowledgeable... Yeah. All right, you can hang it up there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you later, mate. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> Be great talking to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you can you can only really do yourself a disservice from here, actually. Um, yeah, it's all downhill. Uh, Mike, look, obviously, two different parts of. I mean, we are talking obviously about Sydney, Australia, but um, two interesting developments this week. Well, one I suppose wasn't specifically this week, but there has been an ongoing uproar about. Uh, we will start with Duncan Gay, and uh, there was an article in the Guardian. There's been ongoing articles in the SMH about this sort of stuff, and even about the SCG Trust with the interesting use of infrastructure budget to uh, build interesting bridges. But uh, on this College Street bicycle way, which has been totally dismantled now, what what do you what do you think what do you make of all that? I mean, I think the, the immediate the gut reaction is to say this is totally mad in a city that needs more bike lanes and needs more bike infrastructure. We're taking things up, but is there anything more to it? I mean, help me understand. I think um, there there has been a bit of reporting that that hasn't necessarily given all the context, and we do we do need to remember that uh, the Sydney CBD is about to go tremendous upheaval with the building of, of the light rail. And um, and that is that is a significant factor in the way that um, the city is going to be organized, the center of the city is going to be organized in the next few years. And I suppose the, the, the issue is how, you know, where, where, where you, where, how one thinks we should approach these issues. Now, to me, I think that if you've, if you've got a real problem with access to a CBD, um, then you should be encouraging bikes like crazy. I mean, when I was in Amsterdam last year and talking to the experts there, they talked about how they were undergoing a big urban renewal project and, and the use of bicycles had just soared. So, so my theory is, and, and I think others who listen to this program, the theory would be you need to facilitate uh, bicycles. And if it makes it harder and harder for cars, something, a, a project like this, well, then you're preparing them for the future, which is that they will be able to use the light rail, etc. Mm. So there is that context. But the whole College Street saga has been backwards and forwards for about, oh, you know, almost a decade, if I look at it. And the, the crazy thing was that there have been various different routes proposed. And eventually, this, the College Street link was proposed and, and, you know, basically handed to the city and said, this is where it's going to be. And then then it was getting ripped up again. Then it was going to be Castlereagh Street, and that was going to be the alternative that would be provided, which in some ways might have been 
a better outcome. And then there were questions about, oh, Castlereagh is not going to work because it's going to take up parking spots and loading zones. Then it was going to be a part-time lane down a one-way street, which <laughs> begged the question, what happens at 10 o'clock when it stops being a part-time bike lane? You've got trucks coming at you. I mean, who blows a whistle? Um, and then all of a sudden, as if we didn't know, it was announced that, no, it's not going to work out. So the answer is really pretty much not to replace uh, the College Street with any the college tree bike lane with any meaningful piece of architecture uh, of, of infrastructure, which which was an undertaking that was given. So so I think that's the thing that sticks the most, is that now the only alternative is going to be to pedal all the way around Kent Street, which is a huge diversion, and people are just not going to do it. People are going to go on the road and we're back to square one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that is, I suppose, the, the crux of it. If you're trying to uh, get people to use bike lanes and to get bikes into the city, you've got to sort of admit that, I mean, or... Uh, take into account that the fact that people are going to have to get some way through that area and that at the moment there are no viable alternatives. Well, this is the, the, the exact point is that for all the talk that we do about all these bike lanes in Sydney, there is still not one protected north-south or east-west route across the city. You have these sections of bike lanes. And if you're going up, say, um, King Street from uh, Darling Harbour and it's lovely and it's protected, and all of a sudden, bang, you get spat <laughs> out into this crazy four lanes of traffic squashing its way through the city. It's intimidating for an experienced rider. You know, it's like taking a, a, a hose in a garden and cutting out the middle section, then looking at then and saying, you know, not very much water is getting through. I don't know why we're bothering with this hose. Yeah, 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 yeah. You need a completed lane. And even though we don't have completed lanes, we've still had um, documents, which my colleague, the wonderful transport reporter, Jake Solwick at uh, the Sydney Morning Herald has uncovered through freedom of information requests, which point out that during peak hours, those bike lanes are carrying as many humans into the city as the equivalent traffic lane that's next door to the bike lane. So, and, and there's capacity. So these things can only grow, and, well, and yet here we are. That is the bizarre thing, I think, Mike, that I've always wondered about, because I, I do know College Street reasonably well, and I'm sure Tanny does as well. It's never... Because the, the proviso being that the reason that it was taken out was to allow more road traffic, but I've never seen College Street overwhelmed at capacity in terms of car traffic or is that something I'm missing? This goes to the plans for the light rail and my understanding is there is a plan to make ready use of buses up and down that road as as a way of getting them in another city so it is complicated and and I haven't seen these plans I'm not sure that they've been released so so this is the motivation here being given is that we need that extra space in order to facilitate traffic movements in the city during the light rail upheaval nevertheless an undertaking was given um, to provide a, a certain alternative, and that's not being provided. So, um, so that's that's really where most of the people' frustrations come. There's, you know, Bicycle New South Wales is giving facts of 2,200 people using that lane by bike every day. Where are those people going to go? Are they going to go back into the traffic? Um, it's 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 a it's a frustrating situation. Yeah, Mike. I think the the biggest. Um I guess thing uh, I've got going here is that, you know, yeah, the city, you look at all the cities around the world and um, the, the, the ones which work well with bikes have interconnect, you know, a series of interconnected bike um, lanes and Sydney just doesn't have that. And I think people find it so ironic or I don't know that, you know, we've got a, a Lord Mayor who's so pro this yet she just can't get things through and 
and you know yeah it's been going on you know this one bike lane's been going on for 10 years i mean what i i don't even know if even in our lifetimes if we're going to actually see sydney with a proper uh bike lane network i mean it, it sounds pessimistic but you know it, it it's it's going to take you know Look at New huge York. amounts of political will. Uh, and <laughs> look, look at what they had to face before you know it, they made it a reality. Or they did in a relatively short period of time. But you know, I guess they weren't fighting the battles that um, someone like Clover Moore has to fight. Well, that's exactly right. And and part of my understanding is that is that um, mayors and 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 town you know or, or council or, or city officials in in cities like New York have very much more power over, over what is done in their um, in their CBDs and uh, so you know if they decided you know the city decided they were going to pedestrianize Broadway I think it was and and so they did um, and uh, and it's not it doesn't work the same way here so that is the curious thing that you have a city mayor who's very pro-cycling and wants to roll out this infrastructure but but has to work with, with the state authorities. I mean, just on that, I mean, one of the issues being pointed out is that Duncan Gay doesn't seem to have much appetite for cycling because he's... I mean, is there much reason that he's a, a, because he's a national uh, member rather than, you know, I suppose a Liberal member, he's not sort of a of the city that he's sort of working against these things on the nature of, I suppose, an ideological bent or is, is that unfair to say that he's is, is as simple as that i i don't know um it, you know um my understanding is that uh mr gay lives in the city uh at at least for some of the time so i, I wouldn't know about that but um but there have been you know there, he's got a lot of statements on record about being the biggest bike lane skeptic in 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 new south mm. wales parliament etc and that's mm. You know that 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 started quite early in the piece. At the same time, um, there's been this recent um, meeting that they've had on on on, uh, on the roundtable on on cycling safety and compliance, which is a bit of an unnerving title. But what is what we understand is coming out of that is that um, Minister Gay supports uh, meter matters passing laws for New South Wales, and he's he's said that in a separate speech quite recently. So um, one is hoping that you we're going to get that. So you know. Um, but but I, this I, is that disconnect between uh, lycra-clad road warriors and the actual day-to-day cycle. I mean, that sort of a lot of that campaign is to do with people going out, you know, the weekend warriors. I mean, it's great that those things are getting passed, but I think it's almost this disconnect in the discourse between what is real, really that ninety-nine percent of the population who ride bikes and. You're absolutely right, yeah. and there is that disconnect, and that is a massive disconnect, I think, in Australian cycling, both from a perception from without, but sometimes even within the organiser, you know, within within cyclists themselves. But you're right. I mean, the the enthusiasts, the the avid cyclists, will will always ride, and a lot of people are super keen. They don't really like bike lanes because they're slow, and you've got that light that gives you seven seconds to cross, and if you miss it, you're going to wait your turn and all of that kind of stuff. They'd rather be in the road, but but that's not the majority. And really, when, especially when it comes to urban infrastructure, you've got to aim for the person who is the nervous um, novice. Indeed. And that is where bike lanes come in. Speaking of, uh, to quickly move on, Mike, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, adequate infrastructure and... Uh, and uh, I suppose riders on the road and, and, and getting out there no matter what. I mean, the Southern Cross Drive incident with uh, Thomas Kerr, which happened quite some time ago now, but uh, has finally wrapped up in court. Um, 
he's actually he's facing 18 months minimum sentence in jail has been reported and uh, and I guess that 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 all start uh, reasonably soon pending any sort of appeal uh, what, what to make of all that in the end I mean in the end it was lucky that no one died I suppose but uh, all things considered what, what do we take from the, the the case and the outcome of all this well I think that a lot of people were were surprised by um, by the sentencing um, but if you I, I wasn't there and I didn't cover it and I have no legal training. Um, but reading um, the reports of what the, the, the judge had to say as a result, um, you know, there were, there were, there were, there were factors in, which also went to Kerr's previous driving record, um, et cetera, et cetera, that, that were involved. Whether this is, you know, a lot of people have said, is this a, a turning point for, for, for legal, for, for the way the courts handle issues like this? Um, I don't know. I guess things things are on a on a on a case by case basis in in law as they should be. Mm. But um, but at the same time, I mean those those people suffered some awful injuries, um, and 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 many of them are still you know undergoing uh, physical therapy and uh, and emotional therapy. So it's 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 yeah it was it was a, a dreadful dreadful incident. Mm. And uh, I suppose as well, maybe it's a. Hopefully, if anything, if nothing else, it sends us in a message that there are there is some value in. I mean, the law does offer some, at least, some protection to to cyclists who get in these quite bad accidents. Because I think there seems to be so many of them. Tani, I mean, you would have read so many things where it feels like too often cyclists are just treated as accessories to, you know, really bad accidents, which would otherwise be. You know, if they were in a car, you know, there could be very different circumstances to the nature of a case. Yeah, I wouldn't... I don't cycle along Southern Cross <laughs> Drive at all. Uh, not not since that incident, but well before it, I just think... Uh, I'm not saying that they were... They certainly... I'm not certainly saying that they were asking for it, but I think, yeah, those, those types of roads are quite um, problematic. But, I mean, I think it's... Kind of almost utopian to suggest that you know you can ride anywhere in Sydney, and you know you, you, we are under the um, we we have to we're almost beholden to the 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 culture of the mo the motorists and their way of thinking. So it's I think it's until we you can change that mindset, um, these incidents will pop up on on a, a regular basis. I think a, a, an interesting point about Southern Cross is that, well, I mean, firstly, they, they were legally entitled to be there. Mm. Um, but I wasn't around here in 2000. My understanding was that that road was, was massively um, redeveloped uh, on, the, on the run up to the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Um, but no provision was, was made for, for cycling alongside that road. And there were a lot of, um, of infrastructure projects and road projects and widenings and such yep. and such and and west connexes and all of this kind of stuff going on SCG bridges in Sydney, <laughs> in Sydney in the future and the question needs to be asked before these things are built what provision has been made for cyclists mm. because uh, because if there isn't then then you then you get into these situations and it's too hard to retrofit so I would I would encourage people to um, to to keep an eye on that and to support various organizations that uh, that call for for provision for cyclists whenever new road infrastructure projects are being are being considered mm. because it's a, you know you're talking about billion dollar investments often and often the 
the added expense of having any sort of bicycle uh, infrastructure there is uh, maybe ten, maybe ten to twenty million for you know. Something. Yeah, if you're doing it at the time, it's small. And I mean, a lot yeah. of people talk about the extension of the the light rail um, going into the inner west, and there was an opportunity to to provide. Um, you know, bicycle facilities with that. And now it's so hard to retrofit that because it's all built and it's going. You know, you've got to do these things when it's being done. Yeah. Uh, Mike, look, uh, thank, thanks again for joining us. Always interesting to talk to you and uh, I guess we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Cheers. That was Michael O'Reilly from Fairfax. He writes the uh, executive... Style, on, on your bike. On your bike blog in the yeah. executive style section of the Sydney Morning Herald website and he's just does other bits and pieces. And he was on the Tour de France podcast with us, which was a, a fine addition and he's just a general good guy, I guess, Tanny. So that pretty much sums it up? Yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I don't I don't know whether he should be in that because his blog is so generalist that perhaps, you know, people think, Oh, is it only for executives? You know, because he's in the executive style. Column, but yeah, uh, no, you're the, right. The, the section, I should say, but uh, yeah, see, his blogs apply to just basically the broader cycling community, the, really, not the, just the mammals. No, yeah. no, he's a, he's a broad church writer yes. for cycling, um, which is quite niche. Uh, Dennis, we'll just uh, quickly get to the final topics of today and uh, we can close it all out. Well, just finally, Tanny, before we end today's podcast, um, Rowan Dennis, of course, won the USA Pro Cycling Challenge earlier this week with a, uh, a big victory on his Palmars. Mm. Uh, Tour de France stage winner. Uh, he's now got a, a reasonably big stage race under his belt. Obviously worn the uh, yellow jersey at the Tour and the Criterium de Dauphiné. He won the Tour of Alberta. He's, he, Tour down under. Our, our record holder. Yeah, he's he's going all right. I think he's um, progressing quicker than perhaps he not, he thought and BMC management thought because um, BMC is getting a little crowded in the GC. Um, it, it does make the acquisition of Richie Port perhaps even more. Yeah, you won't say re- redundant, but it's it's. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting situation. It's going to be very difficult, no matter how good Alan Piper is at managing personalities, those personalities. There's only know. so many races on the calendar. Yes, and then Richie's made it quite clear from that press release he's interested in the Tour de France. TJ isn't interested in anything other than the, the Tour, Tour de, de France. France. Uh, he's really riding the Volzer as a make good. Uh and uh, so, and then Rowan Dennis is interested in the Tour de France. Okay, he's not there yet, but you know he just needs to shed a few kilos, and then he he'll he'll be, uh, you know he he'll be he, no he's they're all in that second string anyway. You know, outside of Quintana, Froome, uh, Contador, Nibali, they're they're in that sec they're bunched in that second lot. So I, I'm not. Um, yeah, I'm not convinced that going for this dual-pronged approach at next year's tour or maybe a tri-pronged approach is a is a good idea. Well, maybe Dennis will get an opportunity at another Grand Tour next year, which will be the, the way to sort of 
split them up a little bit. But I mean, yeah. you are right, Danny. He does seem to be coming on quite quickly, and uh, it, it's going to be a problem eventually, I imagine. Uh, just on uh, on young guns coming through, Tour de Lavenir, the Tour of the Future, Tour of Dreams, yep. uh, is underway. Stage, I think, about about halfway through. Um, we haven't really had any big mountains yet, so we don't really know how everyone's travelling. Rob Power isn't in the race this year, Tanny. Uh, obviously, he's got a contract with OGE and he's going to be doing some OGE stuff. But um, Jack Haig, what do you reckon? Can he do something big? Oh, yeah. I mean, he can He can probably win it if he wants to. I mean, he's uh, – or at least podium. I, I just – you just look at the the honour roll for Tour de Lavenir and you go, okay, whoever wins it generally does pretty good later on as a, as a pro. Well, uh, well, the stage winner has won it. Esteban Chavez, uh, Naira Quintana, both yeah. they've both done well. So, yeah, you don't need to win it, but it's it's portentous in terms of the podium place getters, yeah. the overall and. You go okay, you know these these are the ones to watch because often you you know there's so many new guys just coming to the scene now, uh, it's it's hard to keep up. But if you look at Tour de Lavenir as a, a portent for future Grand Tour contenders, then it's a good one to watch. And just finally, women's cycling uh, rapper Rachel Nalen uh, of Orica AIS won the Trophée d'Or Feminine. Uh, Carly Taylor was also third overall, but uh, nice little win for Naylin ahead of the World Championships, which I'm sure she'll be looking out for. Yeah, I think she's sort of almost a rider reborn in a, in a way since going under the un, under the tutelage of um, Brad McGee, you know, he's um, been coaching her. So I think... You know, it's uh, hopefully, yeah, we only see these girls, what, once, twice a year at most. So uh, I'm not sure if that course, though, in Richmond will suit Nayland. Time will tell. Time will tell indeed. Uh, good to see her doing well nonetheless. Shout out to her. She's had a, a difficult run in the sport, you'd have to say. Uh, for everyone else, that wraps it up. Thanks for joining us, Tani. As always, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you can find Cycling Central on Twitter at Cycling Central. Tani's at Anthony underscore Tan. Today's guest, Michael O'Reilly, writes for Fairfax. Nick can be found at Michael O'Reilly underscore. And I'm Al, Al, Al underscore Hines. It's hard to say your own name, isn't it, Tani? Especially when you know your mum didn't give you an underscore when she named you. She didn't. That was probably her mistake. She wasn't with the times. Mm. Um, this podcast also available directly on SoundCloud and on iTunes. That's it. Until next week, bye for now. <laughs>